0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? You can follow me on the uh, overhead of the screen, I believe, but reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32... But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Christ. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Well, we're told that we're not to walk as the Gentiles walk. No longer as the Gentiles walk. Well, in this case, the Gentiles is just referring to those people who are not Christians, they are outside of Christ. In that time, God's people would have been the Jews, and it would have been a reference to people who were not Jews, and outside of God's grace to call them Gentiles. But in this case, people reading this, some of them technically are not Jews by birth, but are in Christ, and therefore, are no longer Gentiles in the sense that they're alienated from God. And so we're not supposed to walk any longer like the Gentiles walk in futility of mind. Futility means empty, distracted, anesthetized. How's that? Anesthetized. We're asleep as Gentiles. Outside of God, we're asleep. We are so engrossed in the vanity that is our life and the emptiness that is our life that we are uh, willingly and gladly and, and ho- joyfully unaware of the truth. In fact, we want to suppress the truth. Uh, the vanity, the emptiness, if you read, um, you, I don't want you to read Vanity Fair, but have you all heard of the magazine Vanity Fair? Okay? Raise your hand if you've... Okay, so it's still around, right? I think it's, thankfully, the circulation I don't think is as good, but Vanity Fair is named after a place, a locale, in a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Who's read Pilgrim's Progress? Can I see your hand? Okay, pretty good amount of people have read Pilgrim's Progress. Vanity Fair is just such a place. It's a fair. People on their way, on their Christian journey, come to this place, and it is a, it is a carnival of sorts where they can get lost in pleasures and distractions and temptations. And what happens in Vanity Fair is that you, you, you produce so many, there's so many pleasures and distractions and temptations produced that people are lulled into sleep, they're lulled into uh, uh, being anesthetized. And if that doesn't happen and they don't get lulled into sleep, they become persecuted because they're not team players. And then the next thing that might happen is they, may be, they actually may be killed. They may be martyred in the book because they have come to Vanity Fair and they weren't having any of it. They wanted to be awake. They wanted to live and be alive. And so they named the magazine this. And it was intentional. It is actually kind of a, uh, a shaking of the fist to God in reality to name a magazine Vanity Fair. But probably closer for all of us to, you know, we all like to stomp on Facebook and so I'll do that a few times today. We, we, we probably understand Facebook as closer to Vanity Fair today. Because what happens is you go into Facebook, it's a distraction, you go through and you're looking at all the things and you're seeing all the things and pretty soon you're lulled to sleep, you're anesthetized, right, in, in drivel in emptiness in vanity and so we all understand this we understand this reality and so god speaks to us and he says don't live like this don't live like the gentiles live don't get lost in vanity if you're lost in vanity you're darkened in your understanding you're excluded from the life of god your callus. Do you understand callus? I mean, most people today, the most calluses are on their fingers or their thumbs from their phone, right? Calluses are those things that build up on the bottom of your feet when you're walking. And they help you so that you can walk on, on things that are uncomfortable, like rocks and, and pebbles. And the calluses help so that you won't, they absorb, the they absorb and they, and they kind of act as a buffer between. Well, when it's talking about callous here, it's, it's using it in a negative way. It's positive when we have callouses on our feet. It's negative when we're calloused against God and against truth. We've built up a buffer against God so that we don't have to feel the reality of what he's saying to us. He says that they're sensual, that they're impure, and that they're greedy. This is the Gentiles And he says, is is that the life that taught you Jesus? You didn't learn Jesus this way. This isn't how you learned about Christ. You had to have Christ spoken to you. You had to hear him calling you. You had to be taught in him so that you could be uh, trained and understand what's true as opposed to what's false and what's held you in darkness and in sleep and anesthetized. And so you need to lay aside those things. You need to lay aside all those things that are, uh, that are against God, that are corrupting, that are rotting. Because this stuff, corrupting, it just means rotting. This stuff is rotting. It rots you, and you need to lay aside. There's no place for Christians to have this stuff. It's rotting. You're supposed to put on the new self, which is created in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The old self is being corrupt, corrupted because of its uh, relationship, its agreement with the lusts of deceit. That's its modus operandi. That's its practice. That's the formula of our lives outside of Christ. It's deceit. It's lies we live the lie we it says in romans that 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 the ungodly suppress the truth in unrighteousness they try to just keep the lid on the truth in unrighteousness we used to have a pressure cooker and it had uh, this little uh, metal round thing that sat on there was a little uh, pressure escape valve on top and a little round weight sat on top of the pressure escape valve and so that the pressure would be held at the at a constant the weight valve would go up and let out a little pressure Right? It let out a little pressure uh, so that it would stay the constant pressure, but it wouldn't let it all out. Was it your mother that had the top blow and her pot roast was all over the ceiling that one time? Okay. But that's how we are with the truth. In, in, in our ungodliness as Gentiles, before we know Christ, it's like we're standing on the, on the pressure valve trying to hold it down trying to suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And we're not supposed to be suppressing the truth. We are supposed to be turning in faith to Christ, and we're supposed to be turning to truth, which isn't uh, like a switch. Now, for some of you, you may have had uh, some parts of your life before Jesus. When you became a Christian, it just clicked like a switch, and you were done with that stuff. And that's wonderful. But those same people have other things that were part of their lives before Jesus, and it didn't click like a switch. And you have fought and fought, or not fought, alternately fighting, alternately not fighting. You have fought to rid yourself of that Gentile stuff and to be recreated into the image of God. It is a process. It is a fight. It is a battle. And so we're supposed to lay aside the deceit And we're supposed to put on the new self, which is supposed to speak the truth to our neighbor. Now, who is our neighbor? I'm not going to go into the parable of Good Samaritan, because this really has more to do with the analogy of the body that Jesus gives, that that the church is like a body in Corinthians. The church is like a body, arms, hands put together. God puts this body together. We're supposed to speak the truth to one another. We, as believers, have been given by God specific gifts to help one another. If you're a believer and you're part of the body of this church, God gave you something that you are supposed to give to, one another, to the other people around you. And he gave them something to give to you. It's, it's, it's important. It's vital. Absolutely vital. So we're supposed to give to one another the truth of who we are. We're not supposed to give to one another lies. We're supposed to give to one another the truth. We're parts of a body put together. We're supposed to give to one another truth. And so the uh, the word for falsehood, where it says lay aside falsehood, is the word pseudos. And you all understand the word pseudonym, which is what? A fake name. It's a name an author gives... His, it's his pen name, it's his fake name, it's his pseudonym, okay? And so you, you uh, think about a pseudonym and why authors have them. I don't know, there are probably a lot of reasons, but that's not important. Why we use pseudonyms is what's important to this morning, because we use them. We have all kinds of presentations of ourselves that are pseudonyms. There are ways that we present ourselves that are false, they're pseudo. They're falsehood. And so you guys think about it because you've all been on Facebook again. And you have a Facebook, what is it called? The thing people see when they see you on they go to your site or whatever it is. They see your profile, but it's, it is, uh, it has a, it, it's built around what? Profile. Picture, right? You think about your profile picture. Is your profile picture a pseudonym? Is it a pseudonym of who you are? Uh, What does it show? Happy, (laughs) well-balanced. Got it together. Team player. Sweet, intelligent, hard-working, handsome, beautiful, good father, exceptional mother, you know, uh, dependable, jovial, witty pastor. All right, so you go and you see, and what are these things? How long did it take you? How many selfies did it take you before you got the pseudonym that would properly show who you were? But what if our iPhones didn't do that? What if our iPhones only captured The truth. What if they captured the truth? And what if the the automatic profile picture that went up on, on Facebook would show lawless, greedy, callous, petty, selfish, impatient, impure, sensual, lustful, thief, gossip, bitter, liar, what if that's the the image that went up? The painful truth is, if the cameras took a picture of us, they would see that in some way. If we weren't in Christ, it would be what it saw. If we were in Christ, it would see this conflict. It would see that we were lawless. It would see that we were a liar. But it would see this, it would evidence a fight as truthfulness was was fighting to prevail in our lives and in our hearts. And, supposed, and so we're supposed to speak this truth to one another. You're, our neighbor, you're my neighbor, I'm your neighbor. We're supposed to speak this truth to one another. And I don't mean that we come in on a Sunday morning and, some, and you stand in front of the whole church, I just want to tell everybody I looked at pornography this week. I don't mean that kind of truthfulness, which would just be, offensive and difficult and rude and awkward and on and on and on and on and probably is serving some other kind of sick need inside yourself, right? But I mean that you actually come in and you're truthful, that you tell somebody that's close to you, I looked at pornography this week. Would you pray for me? I want to confess my sin to you. And that when you engage with one another, when we engage with one another, we see some semblance of truth about who we're presenting. That we're not presenting as some got it all together uh, wonder person. But that we're actually presenting somewhat close to who we are. And maybe we're gonna cry. And maybe we're gonna laugh. And maybe we're gonna have sorrow and the heaviness of feeling conviction of our sin as as we relate to one another. Does this make sense to you? Okay? Truthfulness. You don't want to present a pseudonym to everyone. And you want to speak the truth to your neighbor so you can confess sin, so you don't project a lie, so that the good that you have to give others is actually available to them. I mean, you think about it, how, when you say the truth to one another, we're a body, we're connected as a body. You, know, you think about your body, your head, your eye, your eye sees, you know, the stove top is kind of orange. If you have an electric stove, you had an orange stovetrop, this is what your eye sees. And your eye just thinks, Kr-r-r-r. I won't tell the hand. I'll tell the hand it's cold. <laughs> you know? Imagine how absurd life would be if that's how our body parts related to one another. Ah, oh, ah, ah, right? Just in constant conflict. But no, that's not how we were made. We were made for the very purpose of helping one another in very much the same way as the body is made for the purpose of giving one another its particular gift and the goodness of that gift, okay? So we're to speak the truth to one another and not to project a lie. Don't don't present yourself as a pseudonym. Tim told everyone last week that I would be speaking about Bitterness, and I will be, because the passage does do, deal with bitterness. But I want to deal, in a, but, so I want to kind of hold off on verses 26 and 27, connect them with the last two verses. Let's go on with uh, verses 28. So he says, uh, he who steals must steal no longer. So stop stealing. This is what Gentiles do. This is what you did in your old self. You, you were a thief. So stop stealing and do some useful work. Do some work for somebody else. Do some work that will benefit everybody. Do some work that'll benefit the body, that will benefit one another. And so when you used to steal, this is what you did. You took things that weren't yours, and you gave them to yourself. That's the essence of stealing, right? Unless you're Robin Hood, which isn't real. You took things, <laughs> you, took, you take things that, that aren't yours, and you give them to yourself. But the essence of of, of working, And getting something to give is you taking things that now are yours and giving them to someone else. It's just the opposite. And it's very illustrative of the reality of this passage because this passage is all about opposites. The old, the new. The Gentile, the in Christ. Okay? The thief, the generous giver. Right? Then he says, stop speaking unwholesome words, rotten, worthless words. Stop talking trash. Stop. So that you can, you know, you think about people and and trash words. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's just filthy language. Maybe it's slander. Maybe it's malicious truth-telling. Maybe you're saying truth, but you're just doing it to be malicious, right? And you realize that there's just Uh, rotten, unwholesome language. And he says you're supposed to speak in order to give edification according to the need of the moment so that it would give grace to those who hear. So we're supposed to edify one another in the moment so that we can give grace. Well, grace is just a gift. We're supposed to give a gift to each other in in our speech. And you've been there. You've been there lots of times. You've been in interactions where you have been in a situation and somebody has given you uh, this, uh, these words that come out of their mouth, and you know they're unwholesome. But what you feel, you don't feel this wonderful gift has been given to you. It's not like Christmas morning and you got what you wanted, right? Instead, you've been given this bucket of gross stuff out of, it, out of the septic tank. And this is what you have, rot, Right? And this is not what we're supposed to give to one another in our speech. Our speech should give grace. It should be a gift. It should be wholesome. It should be speech that will build the other up and affirm the other for their good. And again, it's to the body. It's to the body. It's to one another. Then he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve. Don't cause sorrow to the Holy Spirit. He has sealed you. The Holy Spirit, when we become believers, the Holy Spirit comes and he sets on us a seal. We're sealed. Seal. And he abides with us with us, dealing with us, teaching with us, calling us. And what he says is, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, you grieve the Holy Spirit by paying no attention to being transformed into the new man, but by paying all the attention, by by getting at Vanity Fair and enjoying yourself there. Because what fellowship does the Holy Spirit, who sealed you to be God's creature, what fellowship does the Holy Spirit have with Vanity Fair? And what fellowship do you have with Vanity Fair as God's creature? And so he says, Don't grieve the Spirit. He sealed you, He's the one that put His mark on you. You belong to Him. And when you don't fight against your grievous, horrific sins, it grieves Him, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Now let's go back to verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. I was speaking to some friends recently and the wife asked me something like, and I'm not sure this is right. She's here and I won't ask her to say. She said, well, how can I be angry and not sin? And I think um, it's one of these kinds of things that we don't generally think about. We don't think about what place anger has in our lives. And... This, what I'm saying now, is all going toward the issue of bitterness, so just try to understand it in the track of this. We, we don't have a grid to understand how anger can be good. Anger is an emotion. Anger isn't necessarily, immediately, and always bad. And how do we know this? Well, because Jesus himself was angry. When he was presented with a sick man and he wanted to heal him, and he looked around and saw everybody just waiting to drop the, 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 the boot on his head, it says in the book of Mark that he was angry. And the word that was used in the book of Mark is this exact same word that's used here in this chapter. So Jesus didn't sin when he was angry. There is anger that's not sin. And it's, and it's difficult because anger is an emotion and anger sends you places and you have to deal with it before anger does become a sin. And so it's, it's, it's a reality. So their anger, anger is, uh, we're given instructions about anger in the text. It says be angry, but don't sin when you're angry. It says don't let the sun go down on your anger. And some people say, well, that means you have to stop being angry or stop your fight with your spouse before the sun sets or before you go to bed. I don't. I'm not, I'm not thinking of the literal, you know, sundown and then, angry vampires come out or something. What the the reality is when this what the text is saying is make short work of it. Nothing else, if nothing else, make short work of your anger. Make short work of it. Get it under control quickly. Understand what it is, get it under control. Don't let the devil have an opportunity. Don't give him room to work. If you don't get it under control quickly, it's going to expand. And when it expands, it's going to make room. It's going to make room around you for the devil to come in and for him to tempt you and for him to turn it into something that is sin certainly and will be destructive in your life. James 1, 19 and 20 says, we're not supposed to rush into anger and that anger does not produce in us the righteousness of God that God desires of us. That's absolutely true. So we shouldn't rush in. Some of us are quick and we're angry like that. I can see it when your face, I, I, I see it with some of you. As soon as something gets said and I watch your face and immediately you could just see, you know, we have these tells, not many people don't really. And immediately you just see, and then what's happening is you're, you're not slow to anger. You're quick to anger. So you need to practice being slow to anger so that you can control what's going on Anger is an emotion, control what's going on, so that it doesn't open up a door for Satan to come in and do something destructive in your life. A good rule of thumb is to stop when you're angry and think about why you're angry. What's going on here? Pretty soon, pretty soon you understand that what kind of fuel you're dealing with when you're angry. And when you understand the fuel that you're dealing with, pretty soon the anger, the fuel burns up and the anger's over. When I say fuel, I mean appropriate fuel, because if there's anger that's not sin, it has fuel, and that fuel is appropriate. But once that appropriate fuel is gone, it's gone. And if you want to do anything to refuel your angry episode, what you will do will be sin. Okay? Anything you do to try to refuel your angry episode will be sin when the appropriate fuel is gone. It has only an acceptable lifespan. It can't be unattended. It has to be be attended and dealt with. Anger has to be managed, or it will turn and lead to bitterness. And bitterness is sin. Always. 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 Bitterness is born from sin, and if not removed, it will destroy its host and contaminate many others. It says in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes tr- causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. Anger has an acceptable fuel that is short-lived. Bitterness runs on an unacceptable fuel. It, it, it's constantly burning a fire under the surface that will manifest itself when any kind of pressure or fuel is applied. That's how bitterness works. It's, It's running on an unacceptable fuel. It is sin. It runs under the surface. It's there. It's just there. My parents had a dog named Rufus. Rufus was a Chinese pug, and it had one of those curly tails. And so Rufus... Uh, thought that all evil in the world lived in that tail. And so if you stepped on Rufus' foot, he wouldn't look at you with a hurt look or a whimper or go off and cry. He would turn and chase that tail, trying to catch it and consume it in his wrath. Right? If you said to Rufus, You could look at him and just say, Rufus, he'd look at you. Where's your tail? (laughs) And then you'd say, get it. And he'd go. And if he ever bit the tail to the point that he could feel it and it hurt, he would blame the tail for the the pain (laughs) that he was under. I don't know what fuels that small brain's dog that small dog's brain. <laughs> I don't know what fueled that pug's brain to bitterness toward his tail. But I do know what fuels your bitterness. The same thing always fuels bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. The same fuel. And the answer to it is given, us, given to us in verse 32. But we'll come back to that but to say that verse 32 says something about forgiveness. And the fuel of bitterness is always unforgiveness. It's the inappropriate fuel of bitterness. I've witnessed the progression of bitterness in people that I've loved. I've seen it in people that I've hardly met. And suddenly in conversations, you mention something and and out explodes this anger. And you realize that they have a uh, a bitterness against somebody that's been there and might have been there for three decades. And it just comes out of them. And there's no forgiveness in them. There's no forgiveness. And so it starts with anger. And that's why anger has to be dealt with correctly. Because in order to stay angry, you have to refuel with something. And if you're going to refuel with something, it will always be unforgiveness. Always. And so it starts with anger. Then, it was, then a conscious or unconscious, I will not forgive. I'm holding this note. I'm holding this debt. I will not forgive. They are to blame. Just like the pug's tail. They are to blame. And that's how I'm, that's how I'm seeing it. And then it moves into a retraction of all past forgivenesses that might have been given because then they end up they end up and you've been in these fights with your spouse many of you have been in fights with your spouse and you've said remember that time you and what did you do but bring up a time when they had asked for your forgiveness and you had given it and you retracted it for the sake of your of your anger you understand? It always moves to the point of retracting and bringing, up, bringing back into the ledger all of the sins or perceived sins of the person that's offended you, which, which is perceived sins because the next thing that follows is a manufactured narrative about, about the person that you're bitter against because they're suddenly much worse than they ever actually were. And you in your mind build up this this, uh, straw man that's just like the embodiment of evil. And that's who he becomes. And that's how you see him. And if you talk to other people, that's how you explain him to other people. You might tell the manufactured facts about that person to other people as if they were true. I've seen it. You've seen it. I don't know if you're paying attention, but you've seen it. The next thing is you might join a club. You might actually join a club because there are whole clubs that exist to share one another's bitterness for the purpose of mutual refueling. And maybe the, the person you're bitter toward is the same person or maybe he's just a, a person in the same, along the same vein or type as their, their person they're bitter against. And so they'll tell you about their bitterness. You'll tell them about their, your bitterness. And maybe it's the same person. And you'll just co-commiserate over the bitterness that that person has called you. And you'll, ref, you'll refuel each other. <laughs> Fill the tank back up. And pretty soon there's a whole group of people that meet together. And it's, what do we have in common? Well, we're bitter. Bitter people. And this moves to contamination. Contamination. Where many are defiled. Through gossip, slander, divisive talk is one of the worst things of bitter people. Gossip and slander, divisive talk, lies, half-lies, and manipulations. Even manipulations using things that are true. And it's destructive. And it consumes its host. And it's like that old adage, bitterness is like drinking poison and thinking somebody else is gonna die, right? Well, that's how it is. It consumes its host. It also consumes people around because it's defiling other people as as you go, defiling. Every bitter person believes they have a fair claim to their bitterness. The blame rests on everyone else. A debt is owed to them, and that makes their bitterness justified. Bitter people are ugly. My wife said that this morning. She said, or last night, she said, be sure and remind them how ugly bitter people are. And it's true. Bitter people are ugly. I want you to look with me real quickly at Job in the scriptures, the Old Testament. Don't turn there, I'll just tell you the story real quickly. Job was a man who was called the greatest of the men of the east. He was top, the greatest of the men of the east, the Bible says, blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Job was Ephesians 4, he was putting away, turning away. Job was a Christian. When when men were looking forward to Christ, Job was a Christian in the Old Testament. He possessed 3,000 camels and the servants to attend them, 500 pairs of plowing oxen and the servants to attend them, 500 female donkeys, and I'm assuming the servants to attend them, 7,000 sheep and an appropriate number of shepherds for those 7,000 sheep. He was also the father of 10 children, 7 sons and 3 daughters. The Scripture says that Satan went before God and he accused Job. He says, Job has no real devotion to you. You've made his life so sweet. If you took away all of his benefits, he would curse you. He would be your enemy. And God says, okay, go ahead, take away what he has. Let's see. And so, The camels are stolen, the servants killed. The oxen and donkeys are stolen, the servants killed. The sheep and shepherds are burned up in fire. And the ten children are crushed in a collapsing house. And what is Job's response? I didn't come into the world with anything, and I'm not going to go out with anything. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That's the exact words the Scripture used. He did not sin, nor did he blame God. And what Satan was wanting Job to do was blame God, because he wanted God to be hurt by this. He wanted, uh, he was God's enemy. Satan is God's enemy. So he wanted Job to become God's enemy, and so bring some kind of uh, negative thing into, uh, into the Lord and into his economy. And Job would not blame God. So Satan comes back to God and says, okay, well, it's, you're protecting his body, okay? You know, if you touch his body, if he gets sick, well, then he'll, yeah, then he'll curse you. And God says, okay, anything but don't kill him. So he covers him from head to foot with boils, painful boils. Job sits in a pile of ashes. He takes a piece of broken pottery, and his relief is scraping the ashes with or the, uh, the boils with the pottery. That's the relief he had in his life. Bad. Bad time. And so Job's wife looks at him, and she says, what are you doing? Curse God and die. So she's joining in with Satan to try to get Job to curse the Lord and blame God. And Job said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Now, he's sitting there. He's lost everything. He's scraping his sores in the ash heap, And he says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Then his friends came over. And they sat around him. And they started telling Job things about God and things about Job that weren't true. We know they weren't true because the scripture actually says God says to them that his wrath is kindled against them because they had not spoken of me what is right. That's what he says in Job 42. His wrath was kindled against Job's friends. Job just looks at them and says, You're sorry comforters. You know, you're a sorry comforters. So Satan wants him to curse God. His wife wants him to curse God. In some kind of backward, twisted way, had he followed the advice of his sorry comforters, they wanted him to curse God by believing what was not true. And yet Job would not do it. And one of the most amazing statements in Scripture is in Job 13. Job says of God, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I'll hope in him. Which is interesting, because that was the one thing God said to Satan. Don't don't you slay him. Don't kill him. And Job says, even if he killed me, my hope would be in God. Job never blamed God. He was not excluded from the life of God. He walked by faith. Everyone tried to get him to blame God, and he wouldn't. And in the end... In chapter 42, what Job did was, he gets to the end and he realizes he hadn't seen the big picture like he should have. And what he says is, I repent in dust and ashes. I cover my mouth. And so Job was, at the end, Job was a man, instead of blaming God and blaming everybody else, Job was a man who sat at the end of the the book and says, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And it's one of the things bitter people just can't seem to do. It's not that everybody else wants to blame them. It's that everybody else wants them to join us in saying that we're the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Job says, I'm the problem. He wouldn't blame God. He wouldn't blame everybody else. He was self-accusing. Finally, all bitterness is directed toward God. Finally, that's where all bitterness is directed. We can't curse our brother who we see and think that we're blessing the God we do not see. All bitterness is directed toward God. And here at this point, this is the most scary part of the sermon. And that is, bitterness being fueled by unforgiveness means that embittered men, women, children, are unforgiving. Embittered men, women, and children are unforgiving men, women, and children. And Mark 6.15 says, but if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Remember I said this is scary. Ever since I started thinking about this and talking to people about this, I get more scared every time I read these passages because I, I, I start praying about people that I've been upset by something they've said and done and I start praying about God forgiving, for, I forgive them, I forgive them, right? And you should realize that it is something for you. Think about the places in Scripture. Again, in Mark 11, when you're standing praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. When the man came to, uh, when Peter came to Jesus and said, how often do I forgive my brother? Jesus says to him a parable, and he says, there's a servant, he, owns, he owes the master millions of dollars, the equivalent of millions of dollars. The master's going to sell him and get a little bit out of him so he can have a little bit of his money. And the slave begs the master, and he says, I'll pay it all back. Just don't sell me. I'll pay it all back. And the master has compassion, not because he thinks he's going to pay him back. He'll never be able to pay him back. He has compassion because he has compassion. And he forgives the debt. And then that slave leaves after being forgiven millions of dollars and he goes over and he finds another slave that the Bible says owes him the equivalent of hundreds of dollars. Let me say $300. And he grabs that other slave and he shakes him and he says, give me my money. And the other slave says exactly to him what he had said to the master. I'll pay you back. Give me time. Just don't. And, and no. And he, and he called the, the officers and he had him thrown into prison for his non-payment of debt the report got back to the master. And the master brought that slave who had been forgiven millions, brought him back to his presence, and he said, is this what happened? And that's what happened. All right. Your debt is reinstated. Effective immediately. And he sold him. Just like that. And God says, this is how I will treat you if you do not forgive other people. After what I've done for you, if that's how you'll treat other people, this is how I'll treat you. I'll reinstate all your debt. Listen, family, this is serious business, this bitterness stuff. You, don't even, you want to run a hundred miles an hour away from bitterness. It's awful. A hundred miles away from unforgiveness. If all of that isn't enough, he comes to the Lord's Prayer. And it says in Matthew 6, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, how often do you pray the Lord's Prayer? How often are you supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer? Does anybody know? Some people say, well, that's just a, uh, a pattern, isn't it? We're not supposed to actually just pray that. Isn't that just a pattern? And I, I don't care. Yeah, fine, okay. If you want to pray it as a pattern, but pray everything that's in it, how often are you supposed to pray it? Whenever you're hungry? What does it say? Give us this. Man, that was enthusiastic. Give us this day. Well, so our daily bread, that's only the days you're hungry. You're supposed to pray that. I think it's an indication that this prayer should be prayed every day. And immediately after we pray for our daily bread, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors immediately. And that's not us saying to God, since we've forgiven our debtors, you have to forgive our debts. That's us saying to God, please forgive our debts and we will fulfill that which you've called us to do and forgive one another the debts against us. And in a way, it's a pleading followed by a vow. It's very serious, you realize. Forgive us our debts, and we will forgive others the sins they sin against us. And so verse 32 of chapter 4 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the, that's the sum up of the chapter, is forgiveness. So who are you going to blame today? Who are you blaming? Is it, is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it your child? Is it your parent? Is it that person who did that to you then, and therefore you'll be bitter? What was that that they did to you? Was it a horrific sin? I know people who were molested as children who have forgiven those who have molested them because they know a God who forgave them of their sin and they owed him millions. Nothing we do to one another compares to the offense we've brought to God. Nothing. Compares to the debt that we owe to God. Do you follow what I'm saying? No offense compares. So, who are you blaming? Or are like Job, are you saying, yeah, it's really me. I'm going to make myself to be in the right position with you, Father. Forgive me of my sins. Just like Job said, I repent. I didn't realize what I was saying. I'll put my hand over my mouth. Forgive me of my sins. And Father, I will forgive the others of their sins. Okay? Don't let, root, don't let the root of bitterness get inside of you. Do not be bitter. Practice and understand how to be forgiving. Be forgiving ahead of time. You know the old uh, envelope system for your budget? You remember that, anybody? Put this money aside. You, somebody sins against you, you get, out, you're, you get out some forgiveness, and you put it in the envelope. They don't have to come and ask you for forgiveness. You just put it in the envelope. You put it there and say, God, that's there for them. That's there for them. That's their forgiveness. You've forgiven me so much. And guess what? Where's all the forgiveness coming from anyway? I mean, who owns it all? <laughs> do, you think, do you think somehow it's yours? Man, you're just passing on the good stuff from the Lord is all you're doing. Because he's forgiven you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy to us, that you have given us the ability to leave our life as the Gentiles, to forsake that life, and to be called to be recreated in your image. We ask, Father, that this will happen, that it'll continue to happen, that we will be alive in Christ, that we won't be uh, drawn into sleep, but that we will live wakened to the truth that we won't live as a pseudonym falsely, but that we will look to you in faith and live truth with one another. Father, help us. Do forgive us our sins, please, Father. Cleanse us from unrighteousness and give us in your power the ability to forgive one another and love one another, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.